everyone, welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. If you've been listening to the program for any length of time, you'll know that JT has lived and visited places around the world, and obviously many in the good old U.S. of A. Rich in historic lore, Pennsylvania territory was disputed in the early 1600s among the Dutch, Swedes, and the English. England acquired the region in 1664 with the capture of New York, and in 1681, Pennsylvania was granted to William Penn, a Quaker by King Charles II. Many people think of the cities of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia when the state comes to mind, and we will cover these cities. But as with any state this large, there are vast tracts of idyllic rural land just off the beaten path, and many tales of the strange, bizarre, and yes indeed, the Fortean. Tonight you are going to come along on a journey to the Keystone State, as we enjoy an unusual medley of ghosts, cryptids, apparitions, and the odd tall tale as well. Well, good morning, good evening, whatever the case may be, wherever you are in the world, hearing my voice, I hope that you've had a good week. I know that it's starting to warm up a good bit in the Northern Hemisphere, as compared to last month, and yeah, it's, it's starting to turn the corner for you, thankfully. I've seen a lot of good news come from different places as well regarding the numbers of the COVID and the impact and all of that. And again, as you all know, here on the Paranormal Sun, I'm not out to stir the pot or make anyone angry or upset. And that's why we leave a lot of these contentious issues at the door. But love it or hate it, COVID has definitely impacted a lot of people. Now, I've had several people reach out to me and check up on me and see how we're doing with our lockdown. We're fine. I mean, personally, it doesn't really affect me too much on the day-to-day. I don't go out a whole lot. I am pretty much a, a hermit. I'm like that hermit in Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. Um, yeah, I pretty much hide out in my cave most of the time. I just had a delivery of online groceries dropped off yesterday. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, pretty safe. Now, first and foremost, I just wanted to say up front to all of you, and to the people who have reached out to me and just been there to talk with recently, so a lot of very good friends of the show, and I won't go into the list and name each and every one of you, but you know who you are. Thank you so much for being there and talking to me, because March is a very difficult month for me, and I'm going to tell you why. So for those of you who don't know, uh, my mother had cancer twice, seriously. And the second time when her cancer came back, I found out in January, and she passed away in March. So we're not very far away. I think we're, off the top of my head, we're about eight days away from the date that she passed. And it's always very difficult for me. And you top that off as well with the fact that March is St. Patrick's Day, when I celebrate my Irish heritage. And it's bittersweet because I'm always thinking of my mom. And so just the people who have been there to talk to me about whatever it may be, thank you, because it it takes my mind off of that kind of, um, oh, how do we say it, the emotional side of things. I mean, I'll I'll always miss my mom until the day I die, but just being there to talk to me, uh, like I say, I do really, really appreciate it. And again, so many of you reach out anyway and check up on me, and it really means the world to me. I mean, like I say, honestly, if you would have told me a year ago that I'm going to have this great community of supportive people that from all over the world who are there for me and check up on me and support me, um, it's not that I wouldn't have necessarily believed you, but I would have definitely wondered how. 
So to each and every one of you who reaches out and supports me, whether it be the state and national chapter presidents or just people who get in touch with me on Instagram and Facebook and that, thank you so much. It it does. It really means the world to me. There are times that I might have a difficult day, let's say. I'm just having a bad day mentally, and I'll hear from someone, and it just turns my day around. So thank you very much. And I try to be the same. I try and support people, especially if I see people on social media who are going through a hard time. I just try and make sure to pass that on, pass on that positive energy. Now, I have had a few people ask about what are kind of the goals and the plans for the Paranormal Sun this year. Well, I've covered over basically what we're going to cover. And like I said, it'll be the same kind of mix. And again, I've got to get off my duff and sort out some of these interviews that I've already got recorded and get those teed up to release. But um, I'm going to be honest, folks. St. Patrick's Day snuck up on me. Um, I knew it was the 17th, obviously, but I just didn't realize that we're only two weeks away. So I'm going to get something out there Irish themed for St. Patrick's Day. I don't know quite what it's going to be, but I'll definitely get something out there for you in time for St. Patrick's Day. And aside from that, the next most important thing I've kind of got on my to-do list is to really get that Patreon up and running a bit better for those of you who are supporters and those of you who may want to join and may want to have some additional content, etc. I've just got to get off my backside and get that sorted out. Uh, now, for those of you who are wondering where you can find out about the show, you can find out about me, everything else, the best way is to just go and look for The Paranormal Sun on Instagram. So the underscore paranormal underscore sun. There is another one that's just all The Paranormal Sun, one word. Now that's basically my backup account. And you'll notice there's no photo there, no profile photo. And that's by design because I don't want to confuse people. But at the same time, I didn't want someone to come along and take that username and present themselves as me because I've seen it with many other people's social media accounts where you know they basically had someone go and steal all of their photos and that and repost them somewhere else. So yeah, I just wanted to make sure I covered my backside by reserving that profile name as well. So the best way is to go there, go to the Paranormal Sun, go into the profile and you'll see a link there and that link will basically take you to a landing page with a bunch of different links, everything from the website to PayPal, uh, if you'd like to donate to the show. Uh, as I say, Patreon's there. There's also the Facebook group. There's Twitter, all of it. As I always say, folks, I'm not really on Twitter a whole lot, but if you do want to get in touch with me, the best way is really a Instagram message. I'll usually respond to that the fastest. And Facebook is just funny because I've had several people I've contacted off of Facebook asking separate questions and such, other podcasters, and they'll tell me they didn't even get it for like a month. So, yeah, Facebook is not the ideal contact platform. Alternatively, you can also email me. The email link is in that landing page. But also, uh, it's just the paranormal sun, all one word, at gmail.com. Now, for those of you who would like to support me and can't do so financially at this time, hey, look, trust me, I understand. I know what it's like. So, if you're wondering how else you can support me, the first thing is that you can just tell others. Anyone else who you think would be interested in the content that I cover, let them know. Let them know that uh, the program's out there. That's first and foremost. You can also go on to Apple or um, I think on Spotify, some of the others, 
and you can go on there and rate the show, review the show. That's always a big help because when people are searching for things like paranormal or UFOs or the things that I cover, it helps it come up higher in the list of selections. I've only really had a handful of reviews, so if there's anyone out there who's wondering, well, I'm sure that you've got a whole lot of them, JT, I really don't. So that would definitely be a big help. Now, one other thing I do want to ask the listeners for, and it's pretty easy, really, I think, but one of my goals for this year is that I wanted to have listens from every state in the U.S., and I would ask you, if you know anyone who's in another state, one of these states that I'm about to name off, even if they just go in and listen to one of the trailers or something, just so that I can then say, sweet, I got to listen in each of those states. It might sound small to some people, and some people might say, oh, well, that's not much of a goal. But to me, it would be really cool if I had listens in every state. Now, some of the more difficult states I've already had, and these are the ones remaining. North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Kansas, Vermont, Maine, and Delaware. I'm not sure about Delaware because with my new platform, it basically just lists the city. So you can't really look at a state level. And it's got Wilmington listed. Now, I'm not sure if that's Wilmington, North Carolina, I think it is, or Wilmington, Delaware. But anyway, I'd rather be safe than sorry. So yeah, if you want to support the show uh, and you know anyone in any of those states, send them a link to one of the episodes and just say, hey, can you just listen to this? Uh, even if it's one of the trailers or something, I would really appreciate it. Now, like I say, aside from that, just thank you, everyone who takes the time to listen. I've had amazing support from all of you. And it's no joke. When I tell you time and time again, you are the wind in the sail of myself and getting me to continue doing this program, giving me the energy and the impetus to continue doing what I'm doing. Trust me, you are. So many of you get in contact with me with articles or just kind words, and it means the world to me because it just tells me that I'm not doing this for naught. And after you know nearly a year now of doing this, I do know that what I'm doing is worthwhile, and I do know that many of you love what I do. So don't get me wrong. It's not like I need constant reaffirmation to say, oh, you're so great and everything else. But it's always good to know that someone appreciates what you do. And I can tell you that when I've contacted other people who I've felt value in what they do, other podcasters, authors, etc., they're humbled as well. So it is something that seems to be pretty universal. I mean, I'm sure there are a few arrogant sorts out there who will just say things like, yeah, I know. But in general, most people are very appreciative when someone says thank you for what they do. So yeah, folks, that's pretty much what's been happening around at the Paranormal Sun. I've got a a good surprise for you next week. It kind of ties into this week's episode, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Now, I will tell you with the Pennsylvania stuff, man, I just did a, a fairly brief overview of just getting topics, and there were so many. You'll have more episodes in future from Pennsylvania. So I would say minimum, we're going to be having a total of three. So we'll have this episode I'm about to do, next week's episode, and then there'll be at least one more, and there may be two more. And that's without me even looking for any more content. I mean, I've still got to go and find out the information on each of these instances. But as far as topics, there is no no shortage of topics in the state of Pennsylvania. And it makes it really easy. Now, if there's a part of the world that you'd like me to cover something in, so if you're overseas, for example, and let's say you lived in Pakistan or you lived in 
the Netherlands or you lived in Russia or Canada and you want me to cover something in your area, whether it's a certain topic or it's just what I'm doing tonight with Pennsylvania. If you want a bit of a medley of stuff in your area, let me know and I'll try and get it on the radar as soon as I can. I'm not joking, folks. I've said it many times, but I've literally got a backlog of hundreds of of subjects for episodes, and I'll slowly work my way through them. Now, last week, I had a couple of announcements about chapter presidents. This week, one of our chapter presidents has a birthday. So, to young Max in Illinois. Max, happy birthday. I hope that you enjoyed the time with your mom and dad and all your loved ones. It's great to hear about you building your Batmobile. That's awesome. And happy fourth birthday, and may you have many, many more enjoyable birthdays with your family. Much love from JT here at the Paranormal Sun, Max. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep making your father proud, and keep showing that love and kindness that the world needs. So, folks, we're now going to get into the news of the damned. And for those of you who may be new to the program, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. And Charles Fort was one of the first people who started collating information on things like lights in the sky, sea serpents, ghost ships, all sorts of things like this. He started gathering newspaper and magazine and periodical clippings from all over the world and started gathering them together as notes. And then he later wrote a series of books with his own thoughts and theories on this information and released it to the public so that you and I and Everyone else who's interested in these things could learn about these different cases. Now, Charles Fort referred to anything that was ignored or excluded by science as damned data. Therefore, as an homage to Charles Fort, each and every time I do a news segment on the Paranormal Sun, it is referred to as the News of the Damned. Now, folks, we've got quite a few articles in the News of the Damned this evening. And the first one I've got here, because I haven't done one for a while, and I was having a bit of a chuckle with a friend of the show, Xavier, over at the Xavier and Stone podcast, because on his page, someone had commented something about a monolith, and I said, please, no more monoliths, because as you all know, I did a ongoing marathon series of episodes about the monoliths appearing all over the world last year. But this one I saw, I was actually looking for something non-related to it, and this one caught my eye. And this is from the South China Morning Post, and they picked up the story from Reuters, and this was on the 18th of February. So it's a little bit dated, but I did find it quite interesting. And this is from Africa, and this one is titled Silver Monolith Torched in Congo After Mysterious Appearance. The 3.7-meter object is the latest in a series of mystery structures that have appeared around the world, sparking debate over their origin. The Congo monolith was set on fire by residents days after it appeared at a roundabout in the country's capital. Now, 3.7 meters, folks, off the top of my head, that's around 16 feet high. And sure enough, there's a photo of it being burnt. Um, <laughs> the latest in a series of mystery monoliths to capture the imagination of science fiction fans around the world met a fiery end in the Democratic Republic of Congo on Wednesday when it was torched at a roundabout in the capital. So it says the 12-foot or 3.7-meter metallic structure first appeared in Kinshasa's Bandel neighborhood over the weekend on Sunday morning, 
Now, Kinshasa, off the top of my head, is the largest city and the capital of the Congo. On Wednesday morning, a crowd of curious onlookers snapped selfies and debated its possible origins. Videos posted on social media later in the day showed residents destroying the structure with sticks and then setting it on fire. Similar alien-looking pillars were spotted in the Utah desert in the U.S. in November, and then in Romania and Turkey, sparking conspiracy theories and comparisons to the monoliths in Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. In the movie, an alien monolith is a recurring symbol that appears to play a role in human evolution. We woke up and saw this metallic triangle, says Serge Afulu, a local resident. We were surprised because it is a triangle that we often see in documentaries about Freemasons or the Illuminati. I was wondering what was going to be their reasoning for burning it, and I guess that's the reasoning. Similar mysteries have gone viral on Congolese social media before. In August, an unidentified flying object was parachuted into dense jungle in the north of the country, briefly baffling local authorities. Wow, that's interesting. Local authorities detained two people for questioning until a subsidiary of Google parent company Alphabet confirmed that the device was an internet balloon. This time, again, extraterrestrial intervention appeared unlikely. Residents said they saw people digging a hole at the roundabout on Saturday, so they actually saw someone setting it up. Okay. On Sunday morning, I got a call when I was done when I was doing some sport to tell me they found something strange. I came and I said, this is culture. It's extraordinary, said neighborhood mayor Thierry Gabene. Yeah, so interesting little article there and a bit of a chuckle. And I guess it is sad that they decided to burn it down, but that tells you that it was probably made out of wood with an overlay of something else. I'm just looking at it here because you can see holes in it. But I don't know if it was just like overlaid and they painted that overlay silver or what. But yeah, um, it's not as bad as the guys who lynched the monolith, the idiots in uh, California. But it is interesting, folks. So take that for what you will. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes, as I always do. So if you want to go over and check out this article for yourself, you can go and read all about it at the South China. Let's see here. What was it? The South China Morning Post. So that's our monolith coverage for this episode out of the way. Well, friends, it's a pity. I had a really good article here I wanted to read, and then I got about halfway through it, you know, or a few paragraphs, and then found out that it's one of those where you have to subscribe and pay. And it's not someone that I'm going to use constantly. It is the South China Morning Post, and it's disappointing because it looked to be a really good article. I tried to find it elsewhere online, but I couldn't, so on we move. So this one is specifically uh, dedicated to a close friend of the show, Skinwalker in New York, who is the chapter president in New York. And I just came across this tonight while I was researching for the show, and I found it quite interesting. Now, maybe you've already seen this one, maybe you haven't, but... I haven't. I hadn't heard of this one. So this is from Coast to Coast AM, and it says, Watch, Skinwalker Caught on Film, and it's from March the 2nd, so it's just from yesterday. And as always on Coast to Coast, this is by Tim Banal. It says, A puzzling piece of footage circulating online appears to show an eerie bipedal figure that some suspect could be a skinwalker. The unsettling scene was posted to TikTok earlier this year by user It's Louis Vuitton, who simply labeled the moment scary. 
Unfortunately, as is often the case with such videos, details surrounding the incident are virtually non-existent, with the location, witnesses, and date of the event all a mystery. What can be discerned from the video is that it seems to have been filmed by a pair of friends as they were driving around a remote location in search of wildlife. Illuminating some tall grass with a flashlight, a man in the passenger seat tells the driver to stop the vehicle because he suspects that he has just seen a buck. So that's a male deer. However, the perceived deer then seems to stand up and resembles a pale figure on two legs, making a run towards the vehicle. In a manner akin to a horror movie, one of the men screams, What is that? And of course, the video ends abruptly. Despite the lack of background for the footage, it has captured the imagination of social media users, amassing nearly a million likes and a staggering 30,000 comments. As for what the weird figure could have been, some observers have suggested that it was a skinwalker or similar legendary spirit, being like a wendigo or a rake. More skeptical-minded viewers posit that in light of the cinematic nature of the video and where it appeared online, it is likely just a hoax that wound up taking on a life of its own and went viral due to its ambiguity. With that in mind, what's your take on the footage? So I haven't watched it, folks, but as is often the case on this show, I'm going to watch it right now, and I'm going to give you what my thoughts are on it. Okay, so it only shows this purported creature very briefly, like maybe a second at most. As is often the case, folks, um, there are things in this world I think that we can explain, to paraphrase Charlie Daniels, and there are definitely things that I feel have not been explained in a satisfactory way, and there are many cryptids that I believe have not been explained away. Now, in saying that, I'm always, as they said, I'm I'm always a bit um, non-committal when I see something like this, and especially as they just kind of cut it off. Now, I get that maybe that is what happened, but usually in a case like this, if they were freaking out, they'd just keep driving, you know, and you might see the phone fall or something like that. And for them to just basically show this creature for like a second and then cut off and no more explanation, it is interesting. I don't have the time just right now to go and read all the comments and that on it, but there is a link in the show notes for you. And Skinwalker, make sure you go and check that out if you haven't seen that one already. It's very short, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Um, yeah, interesting. Now, folks, this edition of the News of the Damned is pretty cryptid thick. So if you're a fan of cryptids, there's quite a few episodes or sorry, quite a few articles we've got to cover tonight. Now, I was talking to friends of the show and uh, a podcast that has meant a lot to me uh, that really got me started in doing the Paranormal Sun over at Expanded Perspectives. And when I did the article last week about the thylacine, I sent a link over to them because they're big uh they, they've always been really into the thylacine and thinking that it could exist now i'm not sure if it was cam or kyle who replied because it's just it's it's just like me you've just got the paranormal son and if there were more than one person on the show you wouldn't know who you're talking to but anyway they said to me oh too bad that this has been kind of explained away and i didn't realize that so i went and did a bit of digging for this episode and thanks cam and kyle for just letting me know so the first one here is from coast to coast am and this one came out very shortly after that last episode and this one is titled expert upends tasmanian tiger photo claim 
So if you'll remember, there were photos and he was saying that they could be the thylacine and he thought it was the mother and a couple of cubs. So this one says a Tasmanian tiger researchers claim that he has acquired photographs which would confirm that the creature is not extinct and actually still roams the earth has been upended by an esteemed wildlife expert who reportedly examined the images and concluded that the animal in question is not the famed thylacine. Neil Waters of the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia, or TAGOA for those of you scoring at home, sparked something of a firestorm earlier this week when he posted a YouTube video wherein he boldly declared that recently discovered game camera pictures showed a family of Tasmanian tigers. Perhaps in part due to his considerable confidence, the researcher's assertion garnered widespread attention from both the cryptozoological community as well as mainstream scientists and the media. Well, I guess I'm the media because I covered it. Alas, it would seem that Waters' proverbial, proverbial victory lap may have been a bit too hasty, as wildlife expert Nick Mooney, Mooney, sorry, who is considered the preeminent analyst of alleged thylacine evidence, weighed in on the photos and offered a rather dispiriting analysis. A statement from the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, where he serves as honorary curator of vertebrae zoology, indicated that he had concluded that, based on the physical characteristics shown in the photos provided, the animals are very unlikely to be thylacines, and more likely Tasmanian patamelons. The museum went on to reiterate the position of mainstream science that there have been no confirmed sightings documented of the thylacine since 1936. Unfortunately for Waters, this development has led to him and his claim being the subject of a fair amount of ridicule online for what is now thought to be a massive misidentification. Be that as it may, the researcher appears to be undeterred by Mooney's assessment, telling members of TAGOA Facebook group, that the creature in the photos is very, very thylacine in having at least eight anatomical features that make it a thylacine way more than a patamelon. And more. And from all I can ascertain, the debate, such as it is, will hopefully be put to rest this coming Monday when Waters plans to release the much-discussed images to the public. So, that's very interesting. And like I say, I didn't know about that, that an expert had basically immediately came out and said, You're wrong! So let's see what the next article has to tell us. Now, this article is also from Coast to Coast AM, and this is what I was talking about last week. So this one is titled, Video, Alleged Thylacine Photos Released. And this was from March the 1st, so just a couple days ago. And this is also from Tim Banal at Coast to Coast. After Whirlwind Week, in which they were the subject of considerable speculation, a Tasmanian tiger researcher's purported photos of a juvenile thylacine have been released to the public, and unfortunately, the nature of the creature in question is rather hard to decipher. The strange saga of the game camera shots began last Monday when Neil Waters of the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia posted a YouTube video in which he announced that the organization had acquired unambiguous images of what he described as a baby thylacine. His confident claim sparked considerable excitement in both the cryptozoological community as well as the world of mainstream science. However, the assertion was quickly upended when Nick Mooney, who is considered the preeminent analyst of alleged thylacine evidence, argued that the animal seen in the photos is in fact a Tasmanian patamelon. This set, of, this set off a second round of discussion online and in the media wherein Waters' account was considered debunked and became the subject of a fair amount of ridicule over the whole affair. 
However, the researcher remained steadfast in his assessment of the photos, and on Sunday he posted a new video to YouTube, seen above, that showcases the three much-discussed but heretofore unseen images, along with his analysis and some comments from unnamed wildlife experts who, to varying degrees, support his conclusion that the creature seen in the photos is a Tasmanian tiger. Pointing specifically to a color photo that shows a small animal walking through some heavy brush, Waters declares that he is absolutely confident that it is a thylacine. For his part, Mooney has also not wavered from his analysis, telling the website CNET that animal color, lack of bands, body shape, and some foot detail led him to his determination that the creature is a Tasmanian patamelon. If these were videos, not stills, he said, there would have been no question. And with that, it would seem the debate between the thylacine researcher and the wildlife expert has reached something of a stalemate, with the public being left to decide for themselves whether the photos show a baby Tasmanian tiger or something much more prosaic. So yeah, it's an interesting one, folks, and it's just one of those where I guess it's inconclusive and we'll just have to see if more comes out. Now there is a video here. I'm not going to bother going through and watching it simply because there's not a whole lot for me to add. It's not like I am a thylacine expert. So I'll just have a link in the show notes and you can go over there and check out the video if you would like. Now the next one is for my friends in Texas and in Mexico. So especially to Alan down there at uh, Spooky CG, which stands for Spooky Coffee and Ghosts. Alan, you're based in Mexico, so in Mexico. So if you've got anything to add, get a hold of me and let me know. And I've got a lot of friends, obviously, throughout the Southwest and in Texas, where there have been a lot of sightings of Chupacabra. So keep your ears open to hear this article. So this is from Coast to Coast as well. And this one is Chupacabra suspected of being behind series of sheep slayings on a Mexican farm. And this is from March the 2nd. And again, this is from Tim Banal. A series of strange sheep slayings on a farm in Mexico has sparked concerns that the infamous Chupacabra could be behind the grisly attacks. According to a local media report, the unfolding case started this past Christmas Day when an unknown predator took out several of the animals on a ranch located in the community of Los Robles. The voracious beast then returned three days later to feast on more unfortunate animals and then struck again in January as well as in February. All told, the perpetrator of the attacks is believed to be responsible for a whopping 18 sheep being killed over the course of its ongoing reign of terror. The owners of the ranch enlisted veterinarians to examine the downed animals in an attempt to determine what could have been behind the attacks. However, their analysis raised more questions than answers as they found that the bite marks did not correspond with any predator known to inhabit the region. Now that is interesting in and of itself. The mysterious nature of the killings and the stealthy manner in which they have occurred have led workers on the farm to put forward a rather chilling suspect, the Chupacabra. Accounts of the notorious blood-sucking cryptid allegedly lurking in the region undoubtedly informed the, their opinion, as did the experts' inability to pin the slangs on any prosaic predator. The owner of the farm has now turned to local authorities to help in thwarting the attacks, and workers at the ranch are on guard, waiting for whatever is behind the killings to make its return so that they can put an end to the ordeal. Now, there is a note here uh, for the local media report. Now, I'm just going to open it really quick and see if there's anything much in here. Okay, so this is in Spanish, and it's being translated by Dr. Google. So we'll just see what we've got here. 
Okay, so that's one of the things I wanted to see here, and I've got a bit of an answer, which is uh, this is in Medellin de Bravo, which is in Veracruz, which is a southeastern state. It's on the Atlantic coast, uh, kind of southern Mexico, and that's what I was curious as to where exactly in Mexico was it. Okay, the workers and owners of the place remain waiting to try to surprise and hunt down the responsible specimen, fearing it could be something unknown. The ranch is located 2.3 kilometers off the road to Los Robles, where the foreman has asked for support to publicize this unfortunate situation and, if possible, to put a stop to it. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to kind of see what this original article has to say. And... It says the creature that haunts the ranch has not left any clue to determine its true nature and the size of the terrain has made it difficult to track it and locate it to end it or, if possible, capture it. Faced with such a situation and fearing facing the unknown, the aggravated requested, the aggrieved requested the support of local authorities to stop these attacks. So there's not a whole lot more in there than there is in the uh, Coast to Coast article. And this is from Voz and Libertad, uh, Imogen de Veracruz is the name of the paper. So yeah, uh, there'll be. So if you go in the link of the show notes for the Chupacabra, then there's a further link to this if you want to check it out. But like I say, there's not a whole lot there that the Coast to Coast article doesn't cover over. So here's our last article for the news of the dam for this episode, and I saved the most bizarre for last for you tonight. This is a bit of a different one, but um, we've, we visited Zimbabwe before, and this one is from Zimbabwe. And this one says, Family in Zimbabwe tormented by mysterious invisible stone thrower. And this is also from Coast to Coast. A family in Zimbabwe say their lives have been torn asunder by a mysterious invisible force that keeps pelting their home with stones, according to a local media report. The bizarre case is unfolding in the town of Gwanda where Portia Zhao's residence has become the target of an unseen menace. It has been happening for a while now. Stones are thrown on the roof, she lamented. At first we thought it was thieves or someone making fun of us, until now when the stones have become so rampant that we even get these attacks during the day. The Zhao family turned to their neighbors in the hopes that they could figure out who or what was behind the harassment, but a search of the area from which the stones seemed to be emanating failed to produce the perpetrator. Meanwhile, the rain of rocks continued unabated, raising concerns in the community, especially since those who helped the Zhaos also became targets of the mystery tormentor. Conceding that they initially thought the situation was a joke, one resident became convinced when a huge pebble missed my leg. Since the source of the stone throwing could not be found and it seemingly only increased its barrage, despite being the target of a fairly serious search, many people have the in the community have begun to speculate that the matter could be supernatural in nature. We just saw stones being thrown, but we didn't see the person throwing them, marveled one bewildered individual, who declared that these are goblins, I tell you. While skeptical observers might scoff at such a suggestion, goblins are frequently suspected of causing all manner of mischief in Zimbabwe, where a dwarf-like entity known as the Tekoloshi strikes fear in the hearts of people who believe they've run afoul of it. In the past year alone, the creatures have been blamed for a series of deaths at a cursed bridge and were credited with terrifying a pair of police officers. However, the troubles faced by the Zhao family may not necessarily be the work of a Tikoloshi, as the stone-throwing sounds eerily similar 
to several poltergeist cases from the past, including incidents in India, Bhutan, Romania, and even a different village in Zimbabwe back in 2017. And so until the source of the rocks that have been pelting the home in Gwanda can be unmasked, a goblin, a poltergeist, and a cruel prankster all remain viable subjects. So, look, uh, that's an interesting one, and it's definitely not something I would want happening to my home. It's one thing to just experience it, but it's a lot different if you're living there. Now, folks, something that many of you listening may have no idea about, but you know what a djinn is or a genie. So we have this westernized version of the genie from stories like Aladdin and Alibaba and stories like that about the genie and the lamp. But that's obviously based on the jinn, and they talk about the jinn in the Quran. Well, in the Middle East, and especially uh, in areas, obviously, that are Islamic, but especially in the Middle East, especially in places like Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Oman, and a lot of these other areas, which are the areas where Islam really started out before it spread around the world. Well, in these areas in particular, there are these stories of jinn and them being a real thing. And I've heard many stories in the past that jinn will come out at night in particular and they will throw stones and you won't be able to see them because they're invisible to our eyes. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I don't know how true it is, obviously, and none of us really do. I don't have a Zimbabwean chapter president right now, but maybe in future. But it's a fascinating article nonetheless, and you've heard me cover a couple other articles out of Zimbabwe. One about the goblins that were chased out of the school and the other about either the mermaids or the goblins that were scaring these fishermen at the bridge. So, yeah, very interesting, no doubt. Now, that's it for the news of the damned. Before we get into the Pennsylvania stories, and by the way, this episode, the Pennsylvanian stuff, is dedicated to Skinwalker in New York, who spent many years living there, and of course to our chapter president, Nate who it was born and raised and still lives in Pennsylvania. But anyway, before we get into that, I'm just going to play a very quick segment for you from another program. So as I told you before, I've joined the TNC Podcasting Co-op, and this is from another program there that I told I would be happy to let them have a minute segment on the program to give you a bit of an idea of what they cover. But they do a lot of reviews of movies, they watch two movies that have something in common, and then they all do a review on it. So without further ado, here is a preview of Twin Picks. The Breakfast Club and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Olympus has fallen and White House down. The Big Sleep and The Big Lebowski. What do these titles all have in common? They're movies. Yeah, but they're also films we've covered on our podcast, Twin Picks. I'm Meg Jansen. I'm Eliza Jansen. And I'm Noah Jansen. And together with our incredible sound engineer and composer, Anthony. I am Anthony. We are the family film podcast, Twin Picks. Every single week we watch two films that share some kind of interesting connection and then we decide which one does its job better. Maybe the movies came out at the same time and kind of cover the same subject matter, like striptease and showgirls. Ooh, saucy. Or maybe they just have similar titles, like Billy Madison and Billy Elliot. Yeah, whatever the connection, you should definitely listen in every Sunday for new episodes because we have heaps of fun arguing about movies, learning fascinating behind-the-scenes info, and most importantly, bonding. Ooh, yeah, when are we going to do a James Bond movie? Oh, we could do James Bond and Austin Powers. Yeah, yeah. James Bond. <laughs> 
Taylor Swift to Henry Hines, Betsy Ross to Kevin Bacon, from Tony Dorsett to W.C. Fields, John Barrymore to Joan Jett, Arnold Palmer to Grace Kelly. All of these people, and scores more, were born or gained fame in the state of Pennsylvania. Four of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history, Jim Kelly, Joe Montana, Dan Marino, and JT's all-time favorite, Johnny Unitas, were all born and raised here. What do they feed these people that is so good for your success? Add in the likes of Aaron Donald, Jack Ham, Joe Namath, Marvin Harrison, Chuck Bednarik, Fred Bolitnikoff, Andre Reed, Mike Munchak, and another JT favorite, the Galloping Ghost, Red Grange. And you can see that the state is no slouch in producing Hall of Famers here either. There are legendary sports people in numerous other disciplines, from Wilt Chamberlain, Earl the Pearl Monroe, and Kobe Bryant in the NBA, to Roy Campanella, Nellie Fox, Ken Griffey Jr., Reggie Jackson, Tommy Lasorda, Christy Mathewson, Mike Piazza, Mike Mussina, Eddie Plank, Bruce Souter, as well as baseball immortal Honus Wagner, and personal favorite of JT, and might I add Cardinal fans worldwide, Stan the Man Musial in the national pastime. Bill Tilden was the first American to win a Wimbledon singles crown, the world's top-ranked player from 1920 to 1925. Larry Holmes, who was the world heavyweight champ from 78 to 85 and defended his title 20 times and had a career record of 67 and 6, is also from here. Betsy King won six major championships and 34 LPGA Tour victories in all. Mike Powell broke Bob Beeman's 23-year-old long jump world record at the 1991 World Championships, and he also won long jump silver medals in 88 and 92 in the Olympics. Paul Costello was the first rower to win gold medals in one event in three consecutive Olympics, in the double skulls in 1920, 1924, and 1928. Not to be outdone, Jack Kelly from 1909 to 1924 won every major sculling event, including Olympic gold and the world championships. And Arnold Palmer needs no introduction, but if you insist, he was an American professional golfer who is widely regarded as one of the greatest and most charismatic players in the sports history. Dating back to 1955, he won numerous events on both the PGA Tour and the circuit now known as the PGA Tour Champions. Nicknamed the King, Palmer was one of golf's most popular stars and seen as a trailblazer, the first superstar of the sports television age, which began in the 1950s. In a career spanning more than six decades, Palmer won 62 PGA Tour titles from 1955 to 1973. He is fifth on the tour's all-time victory list, trailing only Tiger Woods, Sam Snead, Jack Nicholas, and Ben Hogan. He won seven major titles in a six-plus-year domination, from 1958 when he won the Masters to the 1964 Masters. He also won the PGA Tour Lifetime Achievement Award in 1998, and in 1974, he was one of only 13 original inductees into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Now, I could spend a whole episode talking about the amazingly talented people that this state has produced or nurtured. Among this group are two of our very own chapter presidents, Skinwalker in New York, and of course, chapter president and field correspondent of Pennsylvania of the Paranormal Sun, Nate Odd. Nate helped me create this list, and wait until you see what we have in store for you next week in part two. In fact, there are so many excellent subjects that you can expect several episodes from the Quaker State in future. 
But let's get started on tonight's group of 10 amazing subjects from Pennsylvania, as our Quaker friends would say. So we're starting out in York, in south-central Pennsylvania, and this is the famed Seven Gates of Hell. Hellum Township was founded in 1739, a pleasant little backwater in a corner of York, Pennsylvania. It boasts rich forestry, lakes, wildlife, and waterfalls, although residents are somewhat less thrilled by the presence of an alleged Hellgate in the township. The Seven Gates of Hell, York, Hellman Township, is reputed to feature seven remote gates, which when passed through in the right order, open an entrance to Hell. There are two popular versions of the myth, with numerous variants of each. One states that a mental institution used to be located on either Toad Road or Trout Run Road, depending on the source, in Hellman Township. It was erected in a remote location so as to isolate people deemed insane from the rest of the world. One day in the 1800s, a fire broke out, and due to its remoteness, firefighters could not reach the hospital in time to save it. Many patients died in the flames, while others escaped and were soon beaten to death. The gates' role in the story is disputed. Some say that the gates were put up by the local search party to trap the remaining inmates. Others say that, completely unrelated to the asylum story, this story deals with a local doctor, accounts of whom range from eccentric to psychotic. He was said to have owned the land, on which he built a series of peculiar gates leading deeper and deeper into the forest. Both accounts agree on only one gate being visible during the day, but the other six can be seen at night. According to the legend, no one has ever passed the fifth gate, but if they had passed all seven, they would go directly to hell. Another story about the gates of hell is a man in the 1950s who murdered his wife and children with a shotgun and impaled their corpses on the spikes of one of the gates. Before the house was torn down, bullet holes were apparently visible in the garage door and in the wall on the side of the house where the garage door was located. In reality, there is no road called Toad Road in Hellman Township, but there is one named Trout Run Road. There was no asylum on Trout Run Road, and the local doctor only put up one gate to keep out trespassers. A related myth states that Hellman was named after Hell. This is untrue as well, as it is a corruption of Hallam, after Hallamshire, England. The area purported to be the location of the Seven Gates is on private property, and trespassers can be prosecuted. The Seven Gates of Hell have received a fair amount of attention. Mike Argento wrote about it in the New York Daily Record, and Matt Lake featured a section on the gates in his book, Weird Pennsylvania. Hellam Township published a page debunking the myths. Local resident Cheryl Engler reported a number of tourists searching for the gates, some harassing her and giving her cause to call the police. Toad Road, a 2012 independent psychological horror film, makes use of the legend. Gary Dudery, a former York County newspaperman who grew up here in the 1960s, puts this forth. There were at one time two weathered stone abstract gargoyle-type objects that resembled toads or frogs located at the head of the trail. These creatures inspired the locals to give the place the name Toad Road. The gargoyles, or whatever they were, vanished in the early 1970s, I think. Dudery says he actually saw the grotesques, which could have been seen as toads, and that fit with the road. Now the next one, folks, is from an area called Allentown, and it's Constitution Drive. And this is in south-central Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia. There's an unpaved road located in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that has enough tales to make a horror movie. 
Constitution Drive is a rural gravel road located within the city limits. The road stretches along the top of a hill with a view of the Lay Valley below. Descending the hill, the area becomes more desolate and quite dense with trees. Your anxiousness is raised as you venture through hairpin turns with a steep drop to your left. The rumbling train blasting their horn does little to ease the tension. This train is one of the reasons tales are told about this mysterious road. Several legends are associated with this place, including that of psycho albinos who turn violent if you venture too near their house and who will push your car into the river if you get out and walk away from it. Another legend relates to the malevolent spirit of a young girl whose screams can supposedly be heard at night throughout the woods. However, the most commonly reported tale is about the apparition of a man and his two dogs. Everyone seems to agree that the man was struck by a speeding train which severed his leg, but like in all good local legends, there are several versions of events. The most common says he was walking his two dogs near the tracks when he was struck. Rather than dying immediately, the man laid on the isolated road for two days before eventually bleeding to death. His dogs never left his side and also died with him. In another version of the story, however, the man and his dogs were killed instantly. The thing people do agree on is that the man's ghost is still walking his dogs, whose eyes glow crimson. After it snows, people have reported seeing the tracks of two dogs, but only one footprint of the person walking them. Making the road even more eerie is a strange melodic whistling sound that's very loud and seems to come from every direction in the woods. The clanging of freight cars hitting against each other in the rail yard across the river can sound like the rattling of chains, adding to the melancholy feeling of this stretch of woods. Legless ghosts and red-eyed dogs aren't the only things strange going on here either. Many travelers on the road have claimed to have seen a group of maniacal albinos that will terrorize you if you cross their path. They will throw stones at your passing car, and if you break down near their property, you will surely meet a dreadful fate. The home they occupy is pretty recognizable on the road. It seems to be the most intimidating. A large sign warning you of a tech dog certainly keeps your guard up. The road itself is in an unpaved single lane that stretches a little under three miles along the Leahy River, connecting Allentown and Bethlehem and straddling the Allentown and Salisbury Township line. The road is primarily located in Leigh Up Uplands Preserve, a large swath of heavily wooded and desolate land on the side of Leigh Mountain. A defunct local rail line runs parallel to the road, and clear, cool natural spring water bleeds from the mountainside. Glowing red eyes have also been spotted in the woods on darkened nights. Others have stated to hearing a loud whistling sound emanating from the woods in every direction. The whistling noise has been known to be quite melodic and soothing, as well as dissonant and disturbing. Several paranormal groups have investigated the area and have come up with EVPs as well as some unusual images. There is an unsettling feeling on at Constitution Drive. Maybe, as stated in a November 1987 article in The Morning Call, it comes from all the garbage that seems to get dumped there. Signs posted along the road warn against this practice. Over the years, the road has also attracted a criminal element, which The Morning Call story also highlighted. Burglaries, rapes, arson, and indiscriminate gunshots have been reported along it, and its unsavory reputation prompted a former Salisbury Township police chief to admit that the area naturally encourages crime because of its seclusion. Or maybe it's the troubled spirit of a man who doesn't know he's dead. If you visit Constitution Drive, be aware that the police patrol there quite frequently 
and may pull you over if they believe you don't belong there. If you're just doing a little harmless ghost hunting, they'll usually let you off with a warning, however. And then there is the peculiar occurrence of the whistling. Locals have described a relatively high-pitched squealing or droning that seems to emanate from the woods enveloping Constitution Drive. Some have described it as a melodic orchestra of flutes. Others have likened it to the gentle swinging of disembodied wind chimes, far, far off in the distance, and shrouded by thick woodlands. Fortunately, while traveling this road one day, a blog writer had an opportunity to meet the gentleman who owns the suspicious property of deranged albinos. He didn't seem maniacal and certainly wasn't an albino. He was, however, very friendly and filled him in on a lot of information on how this urban legend about albinos may have originated. He said the gentleman who owned the property before him housed quite a number of pot-bellied pigs. Travelers on the road late at night could easily mistake the pigs for many albinos. Their red eyes glowing through headlights would certainly startle any late-night rider on this mysterious road. A few local DJs added to the hype by telling their listeners about a story of albino people living in the area. This only brought more people and added more speculation. He also told how the nearby mountain springs had been used during the Prohibition era to produce moonshine. Various undesirables in the area set up camps in the area during this time, while they created their illegal booze. These past activities, as well as overhyped by locals, has led to the strange attraction of many to the desolate road. Sadly, that also attracts those with devious intentions. Due to its close proximity to the city, as well as being quite barren. The area has had its share of problems with illegal dumping, but also, as I said, burglaries, arson, lynchings, and rape. As for any delirious albino people, I don't believe you'll find any here, but that one-legged spirit may still be out there, whistling in the woods. Months at a time, Constitution Drive may remain eerily silent, with the exception of the cool drip of the mountain's spring water and the warbling of birds. The whistling inevitably returns, however, sometimes subtle and melodic, other times cacophonous and maddening. A few say it is the mournful trill of the felled railroad worker. In that case, what tune is he whistling? Now the next one comes from one of the oldest cities in the New World, and also one of the largest, Philadelphia. And this is about the bus to nowhere. And for those of you who may not know, Philadelphia is in the southeast of the state. Many people in big cities are used to using public transit to get from place to place. They are no stranger to waiting at bus stops or using maps to select the best route to get them to their destination. Many are even able to visualize the routes in their heads just by seeing the number on the front of a bus marquee. What many people don't do is aimlessly wander until they see a bus, stop dead in their tracks, and then take off in a dead sprint right towards the bus. And it's probably even less common for that bus to sense that a person is running for it, pause ever so slightly to determine the depth of that need, before stopping and taking its passenger aboard. This is, however, a more common occurrence in Philadelphia, and there is just such a bus. Often referred to as the Wandering Bus, or the Zero, Philadelphia's Phantom Bus never shows a street, a route, or a destination. It just drives. And just like the bus, many of its passengers have no predetermined street, route, or destination. Now here's how I understand the bus legend. The bus belongs to SEPTA, SEPTA stands for the Southeastern Philadelphia Transportation Authority, so a SEPTA bus is the Philly equivalent of the PAT buses in Pittsburgh. The bus has no destination posted on any of its reader boards. In some versions of the story, the bus lists no route number whatsoever. In other versions, 
The bus identifies as Route Zero. Route Zero is not a real SEPTA route, by the way. It stops at no designated bus stops. It has no schedule. You cannot just wait at a specific intersection at a specific time in hopes of catching this bus. The bus shows up for people who are at their absolute lowest points in their lives. The ghost version of the SEPTA picks up the travelers who have experienced awful things in their lives, things awful enough to push them to the lowest possible points of their despair. Stories have surfaced about passengers who had gotten into a fight with a family member, who then later was killed in a drunk driving accident, suffered a miscarriage as a result of a husband's infidelity, lost everything they and their family owned to gambling, or even having committed a murder. The Wandering Bus serves a wider clientele than you may think. The failing businessman, the addict's sister, the questioning reverend have all ridden on the bus. Even a mayor and a police chief, and also a manager of the Phillies, are all rumored to have ridden on the bus. This bus doesn't actually completely stop for anyone. The bus just slows down. Honestly, this sounds like some real public buses I've ridden in the past, folks. The bus to nowhere has been spotted at all points of the city by the hopeless and lost. You wouldn't notice it unless you were looking for it, but it has been commonly reported on West Powelton, Center City, Passayunk, Haverford, Dauphin, and the Grad Hospital. Some have even claimed that the bus has traveled to other cities. If you were standing in Philadelphia proper, and you were at rock bottom in your life, the bus may or may not show up for you. If the bus appears, and you decide to ride it, then you need to haul ass in order to actually get onto the bus. In other words, passengers on the bus invest actual effort into boarding it. When they get on the bus, there's an automated voice. It does not say Route 40, service to Second and Lombard. The bus does not deal in those specifics. It says only service from and the name of the intersection you were standing at. The doors clunk open and you get on board. The doors hiss shut and the bus moves on. The driver does not ask where you want to go, but many passengers tell him anyway. Just drive. You pay fare if you can, but if you can't, the driver will nod, with eyes covered by his blue hat, and you will nod and you will head to your seat. There's no noise, no conversation, no signs. There's no indication of where service is to. Just a note that service is from the intersection of wherever you are currently standing. Many passengers who have survived the ride report not remembering the driver, or if there even was one. They don't remember any of the passengers or any of the stops. It's as if time, places, and things have no meaning on the Phantom Bus. The bus has no actual destination. It just goes in a loop. All the passengers can remember is sitting on that seat in their own personal hell. They ride around for hours, days, weeks, even years. Those lucky enough to rouse themselves from the fog report almost seeming to start themselves back to a place of clarity. They pull the cord and end up just where they needed to be. Most patrons who get off the bus have no recollection or memory of even having ridden, just of getting off the bus. Passengers who have ridden the bus and then left have no clear memory of their time spent on the bus. The other passengers are just as hopeless and dejected. There's nothing known about the driver of the wandering bus. Many have reported seeing the bus to nowhere, roaming the streets of Philadelphia and the surrounding area. The sign on the front of it reading only, SEPTA. If you choose to ride the bus, you need to choose to get off the bus, or else you'll be stuck along with the sad passengers forever. Once you pull the cord to get off the bus, it is said that your memories of the bus will disappear, and you'll find yourself exactly where you need to be. If your heart is bright and your spirit is buoyant, 
it is likely that you have never seen the bus. This was probably based on a real-life SEPTA bus that traveled around Philadelphia on a training route. Thus, the bus had no posted route and stopped at none of the bus stops. Perhaps it slowed down and a SEPTA employee jumped on board? Who knows? Those riders not so lucky to leave just ride around in a state of perpetual despair. Rumor has it that one day the bus will disappear forever, taking all the riders with it. There are even a few who claim that if you ride the bus long enough, you will one day be dropped off back before your troubles began. But those people are never on the bus when they say it. Either way, that is a one-way ticket with a hefty price. So folks, that's a very interesting one. And I don't know if there's stories like that in other cities, but yeah, that's a very fascinating one. I haven't come across one like that before. I came across the Phantom Bus in Illinois, but it was literally almost a ghost bus, and it only went a little distance before it disappeared. Now, the next one is from Chad's Ford, which is in the southeastern part of the state as well. There's a wood in southeastern Pennsylvania, right on the Delaware border, whose legendary status has even made it into a summer blockbuster movie. True, the movie in question, The Village, was written and directed by a local boy, M. Night Shalimon. But when an A-list Hollywood director brings a wood full of misshapen trees into the cineplex, you know the legend has legs. Cossart Road is a long, curvy, and narrow road that is located just above the Delaware border, in the town of Chad's Ford. The road has such a haunting history that it is now known as Devil's Road. Even more, it is so famous that the woods surrounding it were used to shoot the movie The Village. The entryway and most of the first half of the road is so overgrown with trees and vines that it resembles a tunnel. Once you start down the road, there's no turning back. It is very windy, and despite being a two-lane road, it's uncomfortably narrow for even a single car. About halfway down the road, you come across one of the bends, and you see it plain as day, and undisputable, the Colt House. All the trees near it grow up a few feet, then they all turn at an angle so sharp that they are almost parallel to the ground, always away from the house. It's not just two or three trees, it's every tree for several hundred feet. To the right of the road is a wall of rock covered in pentagrams. The house itself sits back from the road, and very few have the nerve to walk up to it. Further into the woods, they say, up a densely wooded hillside stands a massive stone mansion known as the Colt House, which Delaware residents insist was once owned by a member of the DuPont family. The Colt House naturally housed a cult of some kind, as the story goes, but the nature of its ceremonies remains vague, even by the standards of the local rumor mill. Fans of plutocratic conspiracy theories spin wild stories of the DuPont family members marrying their cousins in the house, so that the family's wealth would stay within the family. And then using the place to hide any inbred spawn, these unnatural unions produced. The less fanciful rumors fall back on the old favorites, Satanists and the Ku Klux Klan, who only wanted to rid the world of what they considered impurities. The house's windows are said to be cross-shaped, or among the camp that believes in the Satanist rumors, inverted cross-shaped. Most interestingly, there is a guardhouse on the ground that houses a fleet of red pickup trucks. If you drive past the house too often, one or several of the trucks will come out of the house and chase you away. No matter how close it gets, you'll never be able to catch a glimpse of the driver's face. There's one particular tree among the road that runs past the house that has exposed roots. The roots form the perfect shape of a human skull. It is said that many years ago, police found the remains of a sacrificed victim nestled inside the tree. 
Reports conflict on whether the victim was human or animal. According to legend, a human sacrifice is performed on the grounds every Halloween. The strange thing about the cult house is that there are natural wonders located on and around the house which cannot be explained other than the works of dark magic. For one, a stretch of trees located on the road grow were not cut that way, but they grow to face away from the home, opposite of the natural order of growing towards the sun. This odd phenomenon with the trees stops occurring about a quarter mile past the cult house's location. Other trees in the area resemble skulls and were rumored to be the dumping locations of DuPont babies who were born disabled. Over time, the trees devoured the bodies and took the shape of the child's skull. One person recounts driving down the road towards the mansion when they noticed a pile of dead animals, mostly raccoons, slipped from throat to genitals and completely gutted. It was like there was just a frame of the animal left. When they finally approached the mansion, they were even more disgusted. Hanging from the black iron gate were more carcasses like the ones that they had just seen. It's also said that if you go by at night, you can hear satanic worshipping that goes on inside, word for word. Fortunately, they were there during the day. Many people have made their way to Devil's Road to uncover the mystery behind the road and the DuPont family. Although the land is private property and the forest is littered with no trespassing signs, it doesn't stop people. Those who usually make it back tell one of two stories. They're either chased out by guards carrying large, bright flashlights and driving huge black trucks, or they see and hear things they cannot explain. These voices are thought to be the demons called up by the family to guard the secrets and their fortune, or the devil himself. Over time, dead animals and crosses have been found, and spray-painted symbols litter the trees, a result of sick-minded vandalism. But it's getting harder and harder to explore the Devil's Road. For one thing, the street signs have been removed from Kennett Pike, so it's easy to miss the Cossart Road turn, or to mistakenly turn into a private road called Cossart Manor Drive a few miles up the pike. Even if you find the road, you'll find it liberally posted with no stopping and no trespassing signs on the trees. The legend of the road has been repeated so often in the past 40 years that literally hundreds of noisy explorers would belt up the road by night, disturbing the residents, spray-painting everything in sight, and driving recklessly. The usual obnoxious behavior was bad enough, but it escalated into vandalism and dangerous stunts such as cross-burning that forced the township and police into a strong reaction. A barricade went up with no trespassing signs and threats of heavy fines. Police and private security guards began regular patrols along the lane, which probably accounts for the many tales of visitors being chased down the road. There is validation to the theory of the skull tree being used as a burial ground, however. In August of 1978, the bodies of James Johnson, 18, Dwayne Lincoln, 17, and Wayne Sampson, 20, were found along Cossart Road. They were shot and killed by the infamous Johnson gang. Their murders actually led to the dis bandmen of the gang, and arrest and conviction of its members. Locals say the body of the victims were found by the skull tree. It is after this time of the murders that legends about Cossart Road and the cult house began popping up. So it's likely this horrific crime influenced the accounts. Some locals say it's the ghosts of the three boys that caused the trees to turn away from the road. In 2003 to 2004, the director M. Night Shyamalan chose the location to film the, his movie, The Village. The filming location choice was inspired by the legends associated with Cossart Road. 
used to inspire the actors to feel a true sense of fear. The resulting movie was strange and only increased the curiosity locals had about the woods and the road. Today, the road is still visited by teens and adults alike in the hope of capturing a ghost, a disembodied voice, or to discover the secrets of the DuPont family. So, wow, folks, that's another interesting one, and I've got goosebumps right now, so sitting here in the studio alone at 10 o'clock at night, yep, um, easy to get those feelings, I guess. Now, the next one is from the north-central part of the state near Williamsport, and this is the Wildwood Cemetery. Wildwood Cemetery is the most popular cemetery in Lycoming County, Pennsylvania, simply because it is the largest cemetery. It is also very pretty with all the monuments and the mausoleums. Its location is on top of a hill, and you can see most of the city from there. According to local myth, the cemetery is half evil spirits, half good, split down the middle. Located in historic Williamsport, Pennsylvania, Wildwood Cemetery is steeped in both historical significance and local folklore. The cemetery split down the middle by a road, creating a unique and uphill hike that allows viewers to appreciate the history of the area. The mythology surrounding the cemetery is also rooted in its split setup, with the west side of the cemetery being the haunted side of the cemetery, and the east side being the good side. This is perhaps because the west side tends to have the older plots and more history, while the east side of the cemetery tends to have more recent plots. The good side of the cemetery is rumored to have fairy occupants who appear on clear nights, while the bad side has malign spirits, specifically a howling banshee. There's your St. Patrick's Day tie-in, folks. There are many small mausoleums. Inside several of them, they claim you can hear knocking or voices, as if the entombed are having a conversation. From the road, it's possible to see a statue called the Crying Lady that literally cries and changes position on her pedestal at night. The cemetery is also rumored to be the final resting place of a local fireman who was petrified by the idea of being buried alive. His phobia led to his mausoleum being designed so that it was locked on the outside, but able to be opened from the inside. It's rumored that if you listen through the walls of the fireman's final resting place, you can hear him shuffling around, waiting for the right time to leave his mausoleum at night and stroll the cemetery. This, at least, is partially true, as you are about to hear. Thomas Purcell wanted to make absolutely sure that neither he nor his family would suffer the nightmare of a freak awakening six feet under. So the retired firefighter from Pennsylvania concocted an advanced version of the safety coffin, the escape burial hatch. Obsession with the safety coffin, which became especially intense between the 18th and 19th centuries, was born from widespread fear of being buried alive. Historical records dating back to the Middle Ages at least name specific victims of this cruel fate. And while there are indeed contemporary accounts of erroneous death pronouncements, the paranoia was especially rampant in an age when comas and other death-like, emphasis on the like, medical conditions were sparsely understood. Thus, the safety coffin was invented in various iterations to draw attention to the gravesite should the deceased not actually be deceased. Coffins were outfitted with bells and tubes for air and even feeding. But Purcell took matters into his own hands. A ringing bell in an empty cemetery wouldn't do. He would ensure that he and his family could escape on their own, the premature burial that he so desperately dreaded. Purcell subsequently designed a vaulted apparatus that would allow the revived to ventilate their coffin from the inside via a patented wheel lock that he devised. 
Each tomb was lined with felt for comfort, warmth, and safety, should they begin to panic, and any fallen family members would be laid to rest with tools and bread. Purcell's burial hatch is a peculiar stone structure bearing the five metal wheels, one for each tomb beneath the grave marker, should worse come to fruition. Purcell was buried in his own creation at the age of 83 in 1937, with no sign of attempted escape. Incorporated in 1863 by a group of prominent Williamsport citizens, Wildwood Cemetery was designed to incorporate native fauna, so much so that the thick underbrush and towering trees located in the west corner of the cemetery led to the cemetery's name. Visitors will be greeted by a unique mix of nature, coupled with human monuments to the deceased, which creates a surreal experience. Now, folks, this one is very short. Unfortunately, I couldn't find out much on this one, but this is a fascinating tale. And this one is from Easton, which is in the east-central part of the state, and it's the story of the Goblin of Easton. This is a short but very creepy urban legend with unclear origins. There was once a monk at the mission who loved money and power more than he loved God. He would hear the confession of the good folk who attended the mission, and then would blackmail them into giving him gold and silver to keep their darkest secrets. He turned many a wayward sinner's feet towards the fires of hell rather than the gates of heaven, encouraging their crimes in secret while he reviled them in public. It was after he beat one poor old woman to death that the evil monk was imprisoned and sentenced to hang for his crimes. But just after he was cut down from the noose and pronounced dead, his corpse began to transform before the horrified eyes of the people. The face twisted, and small tusks sprang from either side of his nose. His shock of white hair grew long and greasy, and two pointed canine teeth emerged from his slit of a mouth. The goblin monk opened eyes that glowed yellow even in the light of noonday and sprang to his feet that now ended in claws rather than toes. The people screamed and fled, and no prayer of his, of his former brothers in faith could banish the goblin. It disappeared deep into the forest, only to return at night, and prey upon the monks of the mission, who had been responsible for his death. After five of the brothers had fallen to the goblin, the rest of the monks abandoned the mission and moved to another part of the country. Since that time, the mission house has slowly fallen into ruin. I don't know if this is the same entity, but I did find an, another interesting tale here nonetheless. Stories of the goblin scarecrow first seemed to crop up throughout Pennsylvania back in the mid-1950s though the origins of this ghostly ghoul's tale remain a mystery even to this day. Now you're probably wondering, what, what is this goblin scarecrow is, aren't you? Although I'm sure there are many variations of its story and its appearance that, I'll, that I have yet to hear, I will tell you what I know. The goblin scarecrow, as it is called, is said to be some sort of demonic or malevolent being that screams like a banshee just before it chases you down, sometimes wielding a, a large scythe as reported by a hiker in Sullivan County, who had the misfortune of running into this frightening creature. As the story goes, the goblin scarecrow bears a pumpkin for a head with the carved face of an eerily grinning jack-o'-lantern. What's more, it has been told that the jack-o'-lantern feature can change to form varying expressions, much like a human's face. To further add to the fear factor of this dark entity, two hunters have stated that after coming upon the thing in the woods and after shooting it, it didn't stop chasing them, and it wasn't blood that ran from the bullet holes. No, rather than bleeding, the thing oozed worms and beetles. That's right, the goblin scarecrow isn't stuffed with straw or hay. Like your ordinary run-of-the-mill scarecrow, it's full of wriggling, writhing worms and bugs. 
Are you scared yet? No? Well, I suppose that's understandable. Today's generation is quite hard to scare with mere campfire tales such as this. It's a shame, really. It makes you all so careless and so much more vulnerable to the things that go bump in the night. I won't preach about it, though, quite honestly. I wasn't afraid of this story when I first heard of it either. But, well, sometimes like this, things like this make you wonder when you start hearing strange sounds, strange screams coming from the woods at night, you know? All I'm going to say is that some legends and tales, much like this one, exist for a reason. Whether it be to teach a lesson, or to give us a good scare, or even to warn us of some actual danger. That's why it's best to always be wary and pay attention to those silly little ghost stories you hear. After all, you can never be too sure, can you? And I hear that the goblin scarecrow gets around. There have been sightings and reports of people being chased down by it all over the state. So if I were you, I'd keep my eyes and ears peeled. Yeah, that's an interesting one, folks, and that reminds me of a little movie series that I saw in the 90s called Pumpkinhead. Now, this one is one of the most fascinating ones from the state, folks. And this is a long one, so you want to settle down to hear this story. Now, what would a story of any state be without a haunted house? And this is a really fascinating story. So this is the story of the Congolier Mansion in Pittsburgh, which is in the southwest of the state. You listening, Nate? When you think of the most haunted house in America, you probably jump right to the sinister-looking colonial in Amityville, Long Island, or even the home in St. Louis that inspired The Exorcist. But not every famous haunt has an empire of entertainment media to boost its reputation. Some of it is part of a local oral history. And for residents of Pennsylvania's most western city, Pittsburgh, the stories of the Congolier Mansion make it more than deserving of the title Most Haunted Home in America. It's been given several other monikers through the years, including The House the Devil Built. Congolier Mansion is a monumental part of Pittsburgh's haunted history. The terrifying story of what has been called the most haunted house in America would make one very dark and horrifying movie. Some parts of the legend seem to be larger than life. Is Congolier House really filled with the tormented spirits of all who tragically lost their lives within its walls? There was once a house in Pittsburgh's Manchester neighborhood on the north side. It was known as the house the devil built, and believed to be the most haunted house in the nation. According to the stories, the house on Ridge Avenue was located in a quiet residential neighborhood in Manchester, on the north edge of Pittsburgh. A man named Charles Wright Congolier built it in the 1860s. He had made a fortune by himself in Texas following the Civil War, and such men were commonly referred to in the South as carpetbaggers. They made a lot of money preying on the broken economy in the former Confederacy. Congolier left Texas by river steamer, taking with him his Mexican wife, Lydia, and a servant girl named Essie. When the steamer docked in Pittsburgh for coal, Congolier decided that the Pennsylvania town looked like a good place to settle. The three of them left the ship and Congolier purchased a lot and began construction of the house. A few months later, the new brick-and-mortar mansion was completed. It was located at 1129 Ridge Avenue and was considered one of the finest houses in the area. From the expansive lawn, Congolier could look out and see where the Allegheny and Mahongahela rivers met to form the Ohio, offering a breathtaking view. The former carpetbagger soon became a respected member of the local business community and his new home became a frequent site for parties and social gatherings. Then, during the winter of 1871, 
an event took place that would bloody the location for decades to come. That winter, as cold and snow settled over the region, Congolier became embroiled in an affair with his servant girl, Essie. Whether she was a willing participant or not, Essie soon became a constant bed partner for her employer. For several months, Lydia Congolier was unaware of the affair. But when three people reside in the same house, it's only a matter of time before secrets are revealed. One afternoon, when Essie did not respond to her call, Lydia went to the girl's room looking for her. As she came down the hallway, she could hear heavy breathing and moaning coming from behind the door. Knowing that her husband was the only man in the house, Lydia became enraged. She hurried to the kitchen and snatched up both a butcher knife and a meat cleaver. As she began climbing the stairs back to the servant's room, Lydia began screaming with rage, which naturally provoked a panic inside of Essie's bedroom. Before Congolier and the girl could dress themselves and exit the room, Lydia had already taken up a post outside. When the door opened, she brought the meat cleaver down on the head of the first person to open it. Charles Congolier fell to the floor, a cry on his lips and blood streaming from the wound on his head. As Essie reared back, bellowing in terror, Lydia proceeded to stab her husband 30 times. Several days later, a family friend called at the house, and when no one responded to his knock, he opened the door and peered inside. He called out, but there was no answer in the darkened house. However, as he entered the foyer, he could hear a faint creaking noise in the parlor. He called out again, but as there was no answer, he walked further into the house. Following the odd sound, he entered the parlor and saw Lydia Congolier rocking back and forth in front of a large bay window. The wooden chair that she rested in creaked, and each backward and forward motion that she made. Lydia, is everything all right? He spoke to her. Again, there was still no reply. Lydia continued to rock back and forth in the chair. As her friend drew closer, he could hear her softly crooning a lullaby beneath her breath. It was a child's nursery song, he realized, and he saw a bundle that was wrapped in a blanket in Lydia's arms. She held it close, as she would hold a baby, rocking it gently. The man felt a sudden chill course through him. He knew that the Congoliers had no children. He spoke to her once again, but there was still no answer. Lydia stared straight ahead at the snow outside. Her eyes glazed and unfocused. He gently leaned over and eased the bundle out of her hands. He carefully opened the pink blanket and then recoiled in horror, dropping the bloody bundle onto the floor. It landed on the wooden floorboards with a solid thud, and the contents of the blanket rolled away. The friend fell backwards on the couch as Essie's bloody head came to a halt a short distance away from his feet. The house remained uninhabited for about 20 years after that, due to the horrific tales about the Congoliers. A railroad company purchased the home, and in 1892 the house was renovated into an apartment building to house railroad workers. Most refused to stay in the place for long. They constantly complained of hearing screams and sobbing of a woman that came from empty rooms. Others spoke of the ominous sound of a rocking chair and of a woman mumbling old nursery rhymes and lullabies. Within two years, the house was abandoned once again. It remained vacant until 1901, when Dr. Adolf C. Brunrichter purchased the house. The doctor became somewhat of an enigma in the neighborhood. Although he had been warned of the past history of the house, he chose to purchase the place anyway, and after moving in, had little to do with the nearby residents. Sounds like me, folks. He kept to himself, he kept to himself and was rarely seen by those who lived close to him. Everyone in the neighborhood watched and held their breath, waiting for something terrible to happen. They didn't have to wait very long. On August the 12th of 1901, 
The family who lived next door to Bryn Richter heard a terrified scream coming from the house. When they ran outside to see what was going on, they saw a bright red flash illuminate the interior of the mansion. The windows of the house shattered, and glass shot out into the lawn. The air was filled with the smell of ozone, and the earth under the neighborhood trembled, crackling the sidewalks and knocking over furniture and the surrounding homes. By the time the police and the fire department arrived, a crowd had gathered outside of Brunrichter's house. It was assumed that the doctor was still inside, as no one had seen him leave, but none of the neighbors were brave enough to go in and check. Finally, a contingent of firefighters entered the house to search for Brunrichter. They were unable to find him, but what they did discover was enough to send even the bravest man among them running for the street. In one of the upstairs bedrooms, a gut-wrenching scene awaited police investigators. Lying spread-eagled on the blood-soaked bed was the decomposed, naked body of a young woman. Her head was missing and was later found in a makeshift laboratory that the doctor had set up in another room. From what the detectives could determine, Brunrichter had apparently been experimenting with severed heads. Using electrical equipment, he had been trying to keep them alive after decapitation. A fault in his experiment had evidently caused the explosion. The, youngest, the young girl's head was found with several others, and the graves of five women were discovered in the cellar. Each of the bodies could be matched with one of the heads from the laboratory. As for Dr. Brunrichter, there was no sign of him. He had apparently escaped during the confusion following the explosion, and had vanished. A manhunt produced no clues. He had disappeared without leaving a trace. Sounds like this should be on CI, folks, eh? In September of 1927, an old man was arrested in New York's Bowery District. He was found wandering in a drunken stupor, living among the homeless and the street people. He was arrested and booked for public drunkenness and was taken to the local police station house. Standing in line with the other dirty and disheveled men, this particular vagrant seemed to give off what the officers would later recall as a bad feeling. As the drunk shuffled along, the policemen entered their names into the record one at a time. When the old man reached the head of the line, the officer asked him his name. He replied in a harsh voice, slightly slurred, with a foreign accent. My name is Adolf Brunrichter, the man said. And soon he began to tell stories to the officers at the police station, and they were tales even the most hardened officers would not soon forget. Brunrichter began by explaining to the officers that he was once an eminent doctor, a physician who worked diligently to prolong life. Unfortunately, he could only succeed with his experiments by ending the lives of certain test subjects. He told of how many years earlier he had, brought, he had bought a house in Pittsburgh to which he enticed young women as guests. Anticipating romance, the women were instead beheaded and then used in experiments to keep their severed heads alive. Brunrichter told of sex orgies, torture, and murder, and then gave the locations of graves for other women who were not discovered in the cellar of the house. Authorities later checked the sites, but no bodies were ever found. Brunrichter was kept behind bars for one month in Blackwell's Island. Despite newspaper stories that called him the Pittsburgh Spook Man, the mad doctor was deemed harmless and was released. On the wall of his cell, scrawled in his own blood, were the words, What Satan hath wrought, let man beware. After those fateful words, nothing was ever heard from the man who claimed to be Dr. Adolf Brunrichter again. After the horrific discoveries in the basement of the house, the Ridge Avenue mansion was abandoned. It stood empty again for many years, gaining an even more fearsome reputation. Those with an interest in psychic phenomena made occasional visits to the place, 
and came to believe that the house was inhabited by a fearsome presence. One medium who probed the house was Julia Murray. She detected a horrible spirit there, and witnesses who accompanied her to the mansion stated that objects hurled by unseen hands barely missed striking her. Murray predicted that the entity would kill and would eventually extend out beyond the confines of the house. In 1920, the stories about the mansion caught the attention of another man, one of the greatest inventors that America, and indeed the world, has ever known. His name was Thomas Alva Edison, and in addition to creating the light bulb, he went to his grave in search of a device that would be able to communicate with the dead. Edison was a self-taught genius who began experimenting with scientific theory as a child. Throughout his life, he maintained that it was possible to build anything if the right components were available. This would later include the already mentioned machine. Edison was not a believer in the supernatural, however, nor a proponent of the popular spiritualist movement. He had always been an agnostic, and although he did not dis dispute the philosophies of religion, he didn't necessarily believe in their truth either. He believed that when a person died, the body decayed, but the intelligence the man possessed lived on. He thought that the so-called spirit world was simply a limbo where disembodied intelligence waited to move on. He took these paranormal theories one step further by announcing that he intended to devise a machine that could communicate with this limbo. Edison's announcement appeared in newspapers after his visit to the house in Ridge Avenue. What happened during this visit to the house is unknown, but whatever it was, it certainly inspired him to go to great lengths to create the machine. According to journals and papers, Edison began working on the apparatus. The famous magician and friend of Edison's, Joseph Dunninger, claimed that he was shown a prototype of the machine, but few others ever say they saw it. Edison reportedly continued working on the machine until his death in October of 1931. Did Edison's machine actually exist? And if so, would it have worked? In the years following his death, curators at both Edison Museums in Florida and New Jersey has searched extensively for the components, the prototype, or even the plans for the machine to communicate with the dead. So far, they've found nothing, making Edison's device the greatest mystery of his complex and intriguing life. In the middle 1920s, Julia Murray's premonitions of evil connected to the house on Ridge Avenue remained in the back of many minds. During this period, the Equitable Gas Company, which was located just a few blocks away, was nearing the completion of a huge natural gas storage complex. To cut costs, many of the regular workers were laid off and were replaced by Italian immigrants, who would work for a much lower wage. A number of vacant buildings in the neighborhood were converted into apartments, including the house at 1129 Ridge Avenue. The Italian workers who took up residence in the house quickly realized that something was not right in the old mansion. Their complaints and reports were met with quick explanations from the supervisors at the gas company. They told the immigrants that the strange occurrences were the work of the American workers who had been replaced. Straight out of Scooby-Doo, folks. Let's scare them away. The former employees were playing tricks on the new workers, hoping they would abandon their jobs. The men soon dismissed the strange sounds and ghostly footsteps as practical jokes, until an incident occurred a few months after they moved in. One evening, 14 men were seated around the table in the common dining room. They'd just finished consuming large quantities of pasta and were now laughing and talking over glasses of homemade wine. One of the men got up and carried a sack of dirty dishes into the kitchen. Sorry, stack. He joked to his brother as he left the room, calling out a humorous insult over his shoulder with a smile. 
The remark was answered with laughter, and his brother tossed a crust of bread at his siblings, retreating back. The conversation continued for several minutes before the remaining man realized that his brother had not returned from the kitchen. He got up and walked into the other room to find the door to the basement standing open. Suddenly, the festive mood in the dining room was shattered by a chilling scream. Rushing into the kitchen, the men saw the basement door as it yawned open. Taking a lantern from atop the icebox, several of the men descended the steps into the cellar. Before they reached the bottom of the steps, they froze, staring at the macabre scene that was illuminated by the glow of the lantern. In the dim light, they saw the man who had left the dining room just moments earlier, now hanging from a floor beam that crossed the ceiling above. On the floor directly beneath his feet was the man's brother. He was lying face down in a spreading pool of blood. A splintered board had been driven through his chest and now exited through his back. The leader of the group was on the steps, and he crossed himself religiously, and a gasp escaped from his lips. His friends repeated the gesture before all of them found themselves slammed backward by the force of what they could not see. The feeling of a cold wind pushed against them and then rushed past up the stairs. The men later said that they could hear the pounding of footsteps on the wooden treads, but could see nothing at all. The door at the top of the stairs slams shut, startling the men in the kitchen, who didn't hear anything. However, they did report other doors mysteriously slamming throughout the house. When the police arrived, they attributed both deaths to a bizarre accident. The first man, the detective stated, tripped on a loose step and fell down, impaling himself on the propped-up board. The other brother's death was the result of the same loose stair step. When he fell, though, his head was somehow tangled on an electric wire that was hanging down above the staircase. Accident or not, the other men quickly moved out of the house, wanting nothing more to do with the place. On Monday, November 14th of 1927, a crew of 16 workers climbed to the top of the Equitable Gas Company's huge 5 million cubic foot natural gas storage tank to find and repair a leak. At 8.43 that morning, a great sheet of flame erupted from the tank and the huge container shot impossibly upwards into the air. Steel, stone, and human bodies were sent hurling into the sky. Two of the men who had been working on top of the tank were thrown against a brick building more than 100 feet away, and their silhouettes were outlined there in blood. Seconds later, another tank exploded, creating another gigantic ball of fire. Then a third tank, this one only partially full, was wrenched apart and added to the inferno. Smoke and flames were visible for miles. The force was so awesome that it blew out windows and shook buildings for a 20-mile radius. Locomotives were knocked over, and homes and structures damaged as far away as East Liberty. Across the street, the Union Paint Company was flattened, and dozens of workers were buried under the rubble of the building. Bloody men, women, and children ran frantically about in the streets. The battalion chief of Engine Company No. 47, Dan Jones, was part of the first fire unit to arrive on the scene. He described the Holocaust, saying, Great waves of black smoke swept through the streets, and there was a whining noise in the air. According to a book compiled by the Writers Project of America, the destruction stunned the city, as houses collapsed and chimneys toppled. They wrote brick, broken glass, twisted pieces of steel, and other debris rained on the heads of the dazed and shaken residents who had rushed into the streets from their wrecked homes, believing that an earthquake had visited the city. Even the rescue workers and firefighters who arrived on the scene were injured and killed when weakened structures collapsed on top of them. Entire neighborhoods were flooded by broken water mains, while huge sections of the city lay in ruins. Sections of the giant gas storage tanks were later found more than a thousand feet away. Rough estimates from the following day 
listed at least 28 killed and more than 600 people injured from the explosion. Rescue crews dynamited the ruins in a search for the bodies of the dozens of others who were still missing. Thousands were left homeless by the destruction. Mounds of rubble and debris marked the spots where buildings had once stood. At one place, though, not even bricks and stone remained. At 1129 Ridge Avenue, just two blocks away from the blast site, there was nothing but a smoldering crater. Although homes were on both sides and across the street from where the Congolier mansion had stood were heavily damaged, they were still standing. Yet where the most haunted house in America had stood, and where Julia Murray's proclaimed evil presence had lingered, there was nothing. A hole that was nearly 85 feet deep was all that remained. It was the only house in the vicinity of which no trace could be found. Today, the Carnegie Science Center occupies the site of the Equitable Gas Company tanks, and the terrible explosion is only a faint memory from the past. The house on Ridge Avenue is all but forgotten. Its location is the present-day site of the Route 65 and Interstate 279 interchange. Nothing from the days of Dr. Brunrichter and the Congoliers or the luckless Italian immigrant still lingers. Or does it? If it is possible for the spirits of the past to still wander restlessly along a busy highway, then it would be at this place where such spirits would dwell, the place where one of the most evil homes in the country would be found. Now, folks, that's an amazing story, isn't it? And you might ask yourself why they haven't made a movie about it and why it isn't more well-known. Well, here you go. Now, here's some facts. The first recorded house built at 1129 Ridge Avenue was built in the late 1880s. It was an average row house, typical of the working-class neighborhood it was located in. A mansion would have been quite unusual in Manchester, and the industrial neighborhood would have been undesirable for anyone building one. So, basically, they're saying, folks, why would you build a mansion in an industrial neighborhood? It's not exactly the place the rich and famous want to live. There is no record of a Charles Wright or Lydia Congolier. The home was never used as a dormitory for immigrant workers, and there's no record of it being owned by Dr. Adolf Brunrichter. Troy Taylor, who's excellent, and you heard me talk a lot about him in the Illinois episodes, did some extensive research into the legends of the Congolier house for his website. He could not find any evidence of Dr. Brunrichter's existence and managed to debunk the legend as a whole through his research. There are no newspaper accounts of a horrific murder or a headless corpse, any of them, at 1129 Ridge Avenue. A Marie Congolier was killed indirectly by the blast. She was standing over a wash tub in her basement when a shard of flying glass cut a main artery in her leg. She left behind five children who the AP story reported would be cared for by relatives. The newspaper does not say, however, if Marie lived at 1129 Ridge Avenue. In 1929, the residents of 1129 Ridge Avenue were documented as a barber named John Congolier and his wife Louise. Are these the relatives the AP story says would be taking care of Marie Congolier's children? Or did the directory contain outdated information? Was Louise actually Marie? Well, I did find out, folks, that indeed that is the family who were looking after the children. There was another website. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but basically they had a... Uh, exclusive interview with members of the family fairly recently and they basically said that yes that's exactly who this was these were the extended family that came to take care of her kids there would be no better ghost story to recount while sitting around a campfire than that of the haunted Congolier mansion but for ghost lore historians looking for more paranormal events it is a real letdown and i agree because that story if that was real would be right up there 
The Congolier Mansion story has fascinated people for many years and has since grown into a famous ghost story. We may never know the true origins of the legend, but this story has become an important part of Pittsburgh's haunted history, whether it's true or not. Okay, folks, so now on to something a little more lightheaded, which is a creature from the southeast part of the state, and specifically from in and around the Pennsylvania Dutch region. And this is a creature called the Trotterhead. Much is often made of various Native American names for Bigfoot, and this is a very valid pursuit. I believe we can learn a lot from the stories and descriptions of the First Nations people. They were here, after all, a long time before Europeans came to the New World. However, folklore of all places has its various monsters. Some of them are perhaps entirely mythical, while others may be based on cryptid sightings. Some are likely a combination of both. Trotterhead, or Trotterkopf in German, is a mysterious entity of Pennsylvania Dutch folklore. The creature is said to be related to witchcraft and described similar to the European bed goblin. Early colonial Pennsylvania was a melting pot for various European religious influences, as William Penn's promise of religious tolerance opened the door for many Christian sects. The, Ana the Anabaptists, Quakers, Lutherans, German Reformed, Catholics, and all manner of religious mystics and free thinkers. This allowed the Pennsylvania German folk magic tradition to be born. According to Patrick J. Don Moyer's book, Powwowing in Pennsylvania, Brukari and the Ritual of Everyday Life, one of the most celebrated of all written blessings, used to protect the house and home from the influence of an entity known as the Trotokoff, a name which is not easily translated into English, but has been sometimes called Trotterhead among the Pennsylvania Dutch. It was perceived that the Trotterkopf was either the spiritual form of a witch or a spirit sent by a witch to cause harm. The name is most popularly found in John G. Homan's book, The Long Lost Friend. Ironically, this would probably be translated better as The Long Forgotten Friend. The Long Lost Friend was compiled and written by Homan in the early 1800s and published in German in 1820 in Berks County, Pennsylvania. It was translated into English in 1846 as The Long Secreted Friend and again in 1856 when it became The Long Lost Friend. Different editions of the volume remain in print to this day. Different editions of this volume are often called the Hex Book of the Pennsylvania Dutch. The Long Lost Friend is a collection of remedies, prayers, sympathetic magic, and spells. Much of the book takes in folk magic from other books or pamphlets of the time, including Egyptian Secrets, which is attributed to Albertus Magnus, though it is not his work. Locally, the practice of the cures, remedies, and spells of the type found in The Long Lost Friend was called trying or powwow. While the long-lost friend and the folk practice of powwow these days are frequently associated with the occult, and even sometimes used as a claim for some kind of hidden pagan tradition against the Pennsylvania Dutch, it is important to note that practitioners of powwow in Homan's time, and even into the 20th century, did not consider this any more controversial than prayer, nor anti-Christian in the least. The long-lost friend sat beside the table, sorry, sat beside the Bible, not in its place. It was a passage in The Long Lost Friend where the first written reference to the trotter head appears. To prevent witches from bewitching cattle, to be written and placed in the stable, and against bad men and evil spirits which nightly torment old and young people, to be written and placed on the bedstead. Trotter head, I forbid thee my house and premises. I forbid thee my horse and cow stable. I forbid thee my bedstead, that thou mayst not breathe upon me. Breathe into some other house. 
until thou hast ascended every hill, until thou hast counted every fence post, and until thou hast crossed every water, and thus, dear day, may come again into my house. In the name of the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. This will certainly protect and free all persons and animals from witchcraft. Now, SeekersPABlogspot.com elaborates on the creature, stating that it was the Pennsylvania Dutch's equivalent of the bed goblin. What sort of creature, then, is the Trotterhead? What kind of name is that? Some sources have it that it was a fairly straight translation of a meaningless term from the German edition, Trotterkopf, still leaving us to wonder what exactly is this Trotterhead. If we go to the similar charm in Egyptian secrets, which predates the long-lost friend, we begin to get some clues. Here Trotterhead is not mentioned, but instead something called the Bedizarli. Bedizarli is the Austrian term, which translates to something like bedgoblin. A bedgoblin is fairly plainly a reference to a nightmare, or an entity that brings nightmares. But how we get from Bedizarli all the way to Trotterhead? Let's take a look. Similar charms to the Trotterhead passage are found in other sources and spelled differently. Some of these are regional dialects. Homan's charm in German had the creature as Trotterkopf. Other charms have the creature named or spelled as Trottenkopf, Troutenkopf, Drudenkopf, etc. These all seem to refer to beings which are responsible for bringing nightmares. Drudenkopf, or Drudhead, is perhaps the clearest route, the Drud being female entities with magical powers such as shape-shifting, creeping through cracks in houses and the like. So the druid is essentially a form of a witch, with the suffix head, cough. On all of these, we can assume the creatures were about getting into people's heads, bringing nightmares. The meaning is essentially the same as the bed goblin, even though the words are quite different. Now, the trot in Trotterhead may have become part of the equation as well, as in trotten. Trotten is a German verb to trot, so the charm that may be intended to stop this creature not just from treading across one's property and from trotting across or through one's head in the form of a nightmare, but also from trotting or stamping on one's chest. For the Nachtmar, literally nightmare, was another entity, almost certainly related to these others, which was known to sit on a sleeper's chest. Quaker Cemetery is located along Quaker Church Road in Periopolis, Pennsylvania. According, according to urban legend, the small cemetery, which dates back to the early 1700s, was founded by Quaker pioneers, was once used as a spot for the practice of black magic as well as a place to kill those believed to be witches. Two dark spirits are believed to inhabit the cemetery. One is said to push anyone to the ground who either disrespects the graves or who dares to visit the cemetery alone on certain nights. So, folks, it's a very interesting bit of Quaker legend or Pennsylvania Dutch. Now, for those of you who don't know or aren't familiar... It, they used to call people who were German Dutch. And the major reason that that's uh, explained is the fact that the German word for German is Deutsch or Deutsch. And uh, so it's easy to say, oh, they're Dutch, but they weren't really Dutch. Most of them were from Germany. That's why they spoke German. Although Dutch and German are very similar. We won't go too far into that. But nonetheless, obviously, the Pennsylvania Dutch like the Mennonites and like certain other religious groups, had their own sets of whatever you want to call it, superstition or myths or wives' tales, etc. But there's a very interesting one for you that I'd never heard of. Now, we're moving on to another area in the south-central part of the state, 
and that is Lake Raystown. And this is the story of the Lake Raystown Ray. Raystown Lake is an 8,300-acre man-made lake in Huntingdon County. Every culture has its own folklore, and within most legends is at least a grain of truth, and I've said that often on the show. Lake Raystown has its own tales about what's beneath the water's surface. For decades, there have been many sightings of a creature in Huntingdon County's Raystown Lake. Old photos show large, shadowy figures just below the surface, boaters describing sudden water turbulence and strange appearances of a large water creature. The Raystown Ray was first reported in 1962 in the old Raystown Dam. That dam, built in 1905, was destroyed in 1971 to make way for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' creation of today's Raystown Lake, with depths as great as 185 feet. Organizers of an annual Raystown Ski Club water show almost canceled the show when the creature was seen lurking near the jump ramps that would be used by the skiers. However, by showtime, it seemed to have moved elsewhere into the lake. We've known it's been there for a while now, admitted Managing Director of Raystown Lake, Dwight Beal, when he was asked his thoughts on the astonishing discovery. It's a private creature, but it comes out around this time of year. Call it Raystown's own Puxatawney Phil. Central Pennsylvania is all excited about the Raystown Ray. Not only are testimonies being recorded from eyewitnesses, some of these witnesses have actually caught this strange creature in photos. The first known photo taken was in 2006. Estimates of the creature's size from those who have seen it claim it may be up to 50 or 60 feet long. Pennsylvania locals Jack Dan and Jack Servillo have even written a song about the Raystown Ray. When asked his professional opinion, Jeff Krause, wildlife biology at Raystown Lake, submitted the following statement in writing. I believe it must be a vegetarian. We have not seen any evidence of this animal taking fish, geese, otters, or ducks, so I would suggest that our swimmers and boaters are very safe. It appears this animal's habits are similar to manatees, which are completely herbivorous and gentle. The increase of weed beds around the lake is probably providing more food in the shallows for herbivores, and that would increase sightings. Krauss concluded with, even if a visitor does not get a chance to see Ray while at the lake, there's an excellent chance to see nesting bald eagles and recently reintroduced osprey and river otters, which were not present just a few years ago. It is a wonder how Ray has managed to stay submerged, with nearly 2 million visitors frequenting the lake each year to fulfill their boating and other recreational activity needs. According to the Raystown Lake staff, the lake spans about 30 miles and contains 8,300 acres of water, with depths of the lake being over 185 feet deep. The lake remains over 100 feet deep at seven different points, which is 10 miles upstream from the dam. With numerous coves, submerged timber, and other structures, there's plenty of room for Ray to hide. Now, folks, here we are. Here's our last one from the state of Pennsylvania for tonight, and I've saved an excellent one for last. This one is the infamous Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Al Capone's Holiday Home, the world's first penitentiary, and one of America's most allegedly haunted places. Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary is as infamous as its former residents and current ghosts. When Eastern State Penitentiary, or ESP, ah, there's, yeah, there's, there's a good name for it, opened in Philadelphia in 1829, it was one of the first buildings in America to have central heat and running water. Even the White House couldn't say the same. Its massive stone facade resembled a castle, and it had walls 20 inches thick. 
Prisoners were kept in strict solitary confinement, forbidden to speak to anyone but the chaplain and cell block guards. Over the years, gangsters such as Al Capone and Slick Willie Sutton called Eastern State home, and many of them made headlines trying to escape. Built in answer to an unruly prison structure with no goal of redemption, Eastern State's ideology, known as the Pennsylvania system, was based on the premise that people were inherently good. Leaders believed if subjected to solitude and quiet reflection, criminals would become penitent and this thus in turn would lead to rehabilitation. With its looming gloomy high stone walls, crumbling corridors, and stark cells that once housed thousands of hardcore criminals, Eastern State certainly looks haunted. Its 142-year history is full of suicide, madness, disease, murder, and torture, making it easy to imagine the spirits of troubled souls left behind to roam its abandoned halls. The frightening setting and the frightening setting and professional scares make Terror Behind the Walls one of the country's top-ranked haunted attractions. Prisoners at Eastern State had a toilet, table, bunk, and Bible in their cells, in which they were locked all but one hour a day. When the prisoners did leave their cells, a black hood would be placed over their head so they could not see any other prisoner as they were guided through the walls through the halls of the prison. Interaction and any form of communication between inmates were forbidden. Inmates lived a life of mundane solitude and would only get a glimpse of sunlight known as the Eye of God, which came through a slit in the prison ceiling. In desperate need of human interaction, prisoners would tap on pipes or whisper through vents to each other. If caught, the penalty was brutal. Charles Dickens visited the prison in the 1840s and found the conditions appalling. He described the inmates at Eastern Penn as being buried alive and wrote about their psychological torture the inmates suffered at the hands of their captors. The harsh punishments used on prisoners were enough to make you shiver even without seeing a ghost. There was the water bath, in which inmates were dunked, then hung out on a wall in winter until ice formed on the skin. The mad chair, which bound an inmate so tightly that circulation was cut off, later necessitating amputations. The iron gag, in which an inmate's hands were tied behind his back and strapped to an iron collar in his mouth, so that any movement caused the tongue to tear and bleed profusely. And the hole, a dark underground cell where unfortunate souls had no light, no human contact, no exercise, no toilet, and little food and air. The prison, which closed in 1971, is considered by several sources to be one of the most haunted places in America. It has been featured on Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures and Most Haunted Live, Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters, and MTV's Fear. Dozens of paranormal researchers visit every year and report that it's a hub of otherworldly activity. Perhaps most convincingly, there are the stories of eerie experiences by visitors, staff, guards, and inmates that have corroborated each other since the 1940s. Cell Block 12 is known for echoing voices and cackling. Cell Block 6 for shadowy figures darting along the walls. Cell Block 4 for visions of ghostly faces. Many people have reported seeing a silhouette of a guard in one of the towers. Footsteps, wails, whispers. The same stories over and over again. One of the most legendary tales comes from Gary Johnson, who helps maintain the crumbling old locks at the prison. In the early 1990s, he had just opened an old lock in cell block 4 when he says a force gripped him so tightly he was unable to move. He described a negative, horrible energy that exploded out of the cell. He said tormented faces appeared on the cell walls and that one form in particular beckoned to him. 
And folks, I'm getting goosebumps right now. And then there's Pep, the cat-murdering dog. The only known canine sentenced for life at Eastern State or anywhere. Prison records reflect that Pep took a mugshot and was given an inmate number, C-2559. He was incarcerated in 1924 for having allegedly murdered Governor Clifford Pinochet's wife's cat. Although Mr. Pinochet told a reporter later that at the time that the murder had never occurred and the governor had simply donated Pep to the penitentiary to increase inmate morale. In any case, he became the beloved mascot of staff and inmates and lived like a king at Eastern State until his death in 1930 when he was buried on prison grounds. But tour guide Ben Bookman says, It's a lot harder to find a believer than it is to find a skeptic here. We at Eastern State do not claim that the prison is haunted. We run a haunted attraction. Bookman says the staff do not like to exploit the prisoner's darker image. Sorry, the prison's darker image. Most people making TV shows come in looking for ghosts. That's not the story we tell. Inmates were real people. These were real people's lives. 70,000 people spent time here. We're not going to glorify it, and we're not going to make fun of it. Perhaps hauntings are a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you want to have a haunting experience, your imagination just might make sure you do. Certainly there are thousands of visitors who say they've experienced no odd feelings, no sudden chills, no strange sounds, no apparitions, and yet there are plenty who say that they have. So folks, hopefully, hopefully you've enjoyed those different stories. I tried to have a good mix for you, everything from cryptids to obviously the ubiquitous scary streets that seem to be all over the country, all over the U.S., to some haunted houses and the haunted Eastern State Penitentiary which uh, was the home of Al Capone for several years. Now, I do know that they have redecorated Al Capone's cell to look like what it did during the time he was there. And it is a fascinating place. That's actually the first place in the world that was named a penitentiary. It, all, the term penitentiary came from that prison. So I hope you've enjoyed this tour through the cities, towns, and villages of the Commonwealth. And don't worry, folks. We'll be back here soon to discuss some more. And again, this episode was dedicated to Nate, the chapter president in Pennsylvania, Nate Odd, and also to Skinwalker in New York, who spent several years living in Pittsburgh. And as always, folks, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not re be reached. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.